This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel, the supervisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of which is affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show uh, where we're talking with Haren De Silva, portfolio manager, president, analytic investors. They manage approximately $25 billion, mainly for institutional investors, uh, but they also sub-advise some mutual funds uh, for retail investors. Haren, welcome to Behind the Markets. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. Why don't you tell our listeners about yourself a little bit more about analytic? How did you get started? How did you come to analytics? Tell us a little bit about your story. My goodness, how much time do you have? We got an hour. (laughs) (laughs) You got an hour. Well, I actually started off uh, in the investment industry on the consulting side, uh, helping people pick money managers, and uh, realized back then that uh, manager styles really had a big impact on their performance. So if you looked at value managers, for example, you realize that a certain time equity income guys did really well and other times deep value guys did well. And I realized you could actually build the investment strategy around rotating factors. Uh, And that's when I joined Analytic, which was probably 26 years ago. And Analytic now is part of Allsprings. We are part of a much larger conglomerate, but we're doing the same thing that we've done for the past 25 years, which is basically actively manage stock portfolios using quant techniques. Well, that's uh, all very interesting. There's going to be a lot of our listener base who, who does a lot in that spirit. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting to, to, to drill in. So I guess the actively managing factors. Uh, so you hear a lot about quants uh, and, and in, in today's world, ETFs and quants uh, go hand in hand. Let's, let, when you say you can, you can actively manage and, and time different things, maybe go into a little bit more on those style mappings. How do you think of style generally? And then we can go into the active management of that. Yeah, I actually don't think about style that much. I actually think about factors. So, for example, when we talk about value, people think about value as being valuation, right? But valuation can be forward PE or it can be trailing PE. And depending on where you are in the cycle, one of those is more important than the other. Uh, Or it can be price to sales, which behaves very differently than trailing PE. So I don't think of things in terms of styles. I think of the world in terms of factors. So as sort of this factor-mentalist approach of thinking about which, where we are in the cycle right now, which factors should be important, are we seeing those in factor returns? And one tendency that I don't think is really appreciated is that there is momentum in factor returns. So when factors start working, they tend to work for six months to a year. And what I mean by working is in terms of having outsized returns in terms of positive or negative. And that's the tendency that as an investor, you can actually exploit very systematically. So is there a set, when you think about the factor investing mindset, is there a set of factors you think, do you try, do you have a preferred set of factors? Is it a whole factor toolbox? Are you... How do, you, how do you think about your baseline for what are the strategic factors you most believe in uh, and, and maybe why? Yeah, so for me, the thing you have to keep in mind here is breadth, right? Because if you think about market timing, the problem with market timing is you can time the market, but you need a lot of observations to be successful. There's no breadth. You're either in or out. So on one hand, you, the more factors you have, the better off you are. But the factors need to be meaningfully different. So like the example I gave, P.E. versus trailing P.E. versus price to sales versus price to book versus dividend deal. So in every typical style category, what people think about a style in terms of value, growth, momentum, 
I think there's probably five or six factors that are important. So five times the six or seven style categories that we have in the market, you're up to about 30 different factors that you can rotate in and out of as a way to add value. So I, I, my personal belief is there's at least 30 factors that you should be monitoring to keep track of. And if you don't have that breadth, it's very hard to be successful. Because having breadth is really, really important. And um, so when you think about those, that timing of factors, so, I, so we got 30 factors, we're going to time between these. Um, how are you, how, how do you think about, is, is for analytic, when you're building portfolios of, you know, let's say, just as a top down for people who are using analytic, is it all, do you tend to do strategic non-timing or is it mostly these strategies that will rotate between the factors? mostly rotating between the factors. That's probably, I would say, 70% of our strategy. But we also model mean reversion. So in terms of factors that have long-run payoffs, there is that strategic tilt always in the portfolio. Okay. So it's a combination of the two, but it's 70% rotational and 30% strategic. And um, so, so, you know... When let's so let's say value as a factor as you know let's define value, which is a pretty interesting factor both last year, last fifteen years, and then right now what's happening in the market. So last you know the last ten fifteen years has been so dominated by a single factor, which is mega cap, large cap growth, and anything non Fang uh, was not the place to be. Then last year, then you had the twenty twenty pandemic, and you had the mega growth stocks, um, you know the super expensive growth stocks. Uh, non-profitable tech, you might define it as a factor. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you've had that crater um, with rates in the Fed. How are you thinking about factors today, how they're positioned? Um, is this the year of value? Are you going to overweight value in a portfolio? The short answer is yes. Uh, but let me kind of think about the narrative you gave. So I would really, when I think about factors, I think it's really important to exclude Stocks that aren't factor-driven. And mega-cap tech is a good example of an area which is not factor-driven. There are other things going on with the stocks in terms of the networking effects, the scale effects, tech effects. So I, I, I kind of exclude those in a way from my active bets. Um, so I think that's kind of one important distinction. But if you look at value, you know, what, what I see in the market systematically over time is there are two dominant factor tendencies. One is momentum. So something that's worked for a year tends to continue to work. Value has that now going for it in spades. It had it going for it in spades going into January, right? The other thing that value has going for it very strongly is that a factor that's been out of favor for the last three years tends to come back. And factor and value's been out of favor for way more than three years, right? <laughs> well, I was going to say, what happened the last fifteen years? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, see, it's not mean reversion is not guaranteed, right? So you yeah. need you need two things: you need mean reversion and momentum. And when those two things line up, it's like the stars lining up. So I think it's a it's a it's a perfect environment to be in value as a factor. But the only thing I would do from a timing standpoint is realize that you shouldn't go all in because value hasn't dominated for very long. It's been, you, we had early last year and middle of, the, middle of uh, you know, December to now or so. So it's important to be overweight, but not a two sigma overweight, maybe a 0.7 sigma overweight in kind of tech speak is how I would think about it. Yeah, so let's 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 try to boil that down for. So we definitely have some tech uh, technical quants who listen in that are going to know exactly what we talk about. Before, as you think about building for in, in layman's terms, as, as you think about the building the portfolios of factors, and you might have your thirty factors, and we're talking about value, which, which might be five or six of the factors. But practically speaking, of your five or six main factors, how overweight to value could you go? Like, is it like I could be? as much as half of the model coming from value and only half the model coming from the other four factors? Is it, is it more nuanced than that? How do you think about that? It's about 35% is the most we'll ever see to any group of factors. And that's not a constraint we have on the process. That's, the constra- that's what's driving the market itself. So it's very, very rare. I, I, you know, in about 
25 years of actively running this portfolio, I've never seen the need to constrain a factor group. Because hmm. when I talk to clients, consultants, prospects, they say, hey, what happens if, if, the, if, the, if, the, if your model says 100% price to sales? And I would say, if it said put 80% in price to sales, I would be worried because in a 100-year back test, I've never seen that happen. So either the world has suddenly changed or something different has happened. So, but I think it's really important here to keep uh, that. Keep in mind that we're talking about groups of factors because when you talk about value, like right now, predicted earnings yield, predicted PE is really important. I would urge anyone to ignore trailing PEs because the trailing number is so affected by what happened in the last two years, it has very little power. And you can see that in the way people are pricing stocks, that in the history of my running portfolios, what we are seeing now is very similar to what we saw post-2008, where the trailing number had very little information content. So there's a lot more focus on forward PE, a lot more focus on price to sales as a factor. That's interesting. And, and so in, within those value factors, there is some rotation amongst which factors matter. Um, and uh, that, that is sort of an interesting concept. Um, yeah, it, that's, it, I mean, that's thankfully it is, right? Because if it wasn't the case, there's no reason to do active quant. You could buy a low PE tilted ETF and be done with it. <laughs> right. When, when you think about the... Um, you mentioned that there's certain stocks as so I guess it was a multifaceted question a few questions ago that, you know, they, there was certain stocks that, that don't get driven by factors. You, you published some research, I think on this concept, T- talk about what are the types of stocks you think that are idiosyncratic? How do you identify those stocks? Um, and how much of the universe ends up getting kicked out in your, in when you think about stocks not driven by these factors? So about 15% of the universe, if you think about, uh, I think of my universe broadly as MSCI world, but 15% of the universe end up, ends up getting kicked out. Um, and, you know, when we started this process 25 years ago, we would add stocks to the list on an ad hoc basis. So we would basically say, hey, look at this stock. Perfect example of us keeping track of a stock like that is Tesla, right? an obvious stock that what happens to the truck is driven by sentiment and tweets and everything else and a fundamental factor-driven model has no ability to prevent at that. So that's an easy ad. Meme stocks or meme-like stocks where people are following them and there's a lot of Google search activity are another obvious example. Uh, we'll add that, things like that to the list manually, but historically it's been a very manual process. Uh, What's happened more recently is we've realized that you can actually use uh, machine learning techniques to actually identify which stocks are factor-driven. So you can look at historical data, use high-frequency data, and actually analyze which stocks actually are factor-driven. In other words, factors historically expand their returns. And there is actually some predictive power to that. So we're increasingly starting to use that kind of technique to identify which stocks to take active positions on. So that's why our universe has grown to about 15%. And that's really important in a global portfolio because if it's a U.S. stock, you can keep track of it, right? You follow the news. There's a lot of coverage in Dow Jones, Newswire, and so on. If it's a stock in, in China, if it's a stock in Australia, you may not be aware of it. Um, so that's the type of stock we're trying to identify. And some of these, most of these stories you'll find there's economic merit to it. So you'll, you know, if you look in the electric utility industry, you'll find that one stock that's really hard to explain, for example, is something like AES. Um, and then you look at AES more closely and you realize, okay, this is a utility, but it's a utility that has a ton of battery power. It's got a ton of solar. So it's actually behaving very differently than its peers. Uh, and that's what I mean by... What's going on with that stock, you can't simply explain with factors. There are other things going on. As, as a quant investor, you should be really trying to tease things like that out, right? To realize that, yeah, these fundamentals where I'm comparing it to its peers isn't appropriate for this particular stock. 
No, no. Is that an example where we just need to compare it to different peers, and then like in the in the solar world, it might be because it's included in other baskets, you know, in other ETFs with solar companies. Is it is it is it that factor, and then you, you have a new set of factors on it, or is it you just need to because it behaves so wildly, it's just not it's not good for a model. I, I think if you had another basket of similar companies, you could probably do a better job. And that would probably be the next thing we work on. You know, that's my, I mean, that's kind of my dream, right? Where I don't, I don't throw something out of the universe because I don't understand it. I actually take the time to understand it. Right. But I, I think personally right now I'm at the stage where I'm looking at this and going, okay, I at least understand why my model can't explain this. Yep. Yep, no, that makes sense. We're talking with Harindra De Silva, who is uh, from Analytic Investors, about his quantitative modeling, how he thinks about building unique sets of factors. Um, and, and so, Harindra, when you think about the momentum of these factors, um, how are you in, in, in the timing of, of – is, is momentum the really only factor for tactical – what factors you want to overweight or underweight? Are you th- how do you think about building the portfolio of factors – um, is it, does it go beyond momentum? No, it's basically those two components. It's factor momentum and mean reversion. Um, but, and the breadth of factors, right? Because it's not just price momentum. It's which factors have been working. So you'll see, you know, within, like I meant, we've talked about value a lot, but, you know, if you look at within the quality segment, things like asset utilization, so how quick, how effectively are you using your assets is a very important factor. Uh, if you look at earnings quality, we look at things like analyst dispersion. Do analysts agree or disagree? And generally, that's a really good factor to be short. So stocks with high analyst dispersion, especially in the current environment with high VIX, tend to do poorly. Uh, so there's, there's a whole range of breadth of factors you can look at. And that's why it's not just value or price momentum. It's looking at the breadth of factors and figuring out which ones to over and underweight. So we talked about value. I want to go through, and now we just talked about value, and you mentioned quality. There's a few. Um, and we have this sort of timing of all these things. If we if we were to go through your complete, like um, you, you mentioned, there could be 30 total factors, and we got five or six before. Um, is I want to see if we could kick off any factors that you don't believe in, right? So we got value, we got quality. Within momentum, you have a time series, but do you think momentum as a standalone factor is, is one of the, the momentum factors you're trying to bring into the toolbox? A- absolutely. So momentum, you know, six-month momentum, 12-month momentum. When you're looking at momentum, it's really important to tease out stock-specific momentum. So remove industry effects, remove other factor effects. Uh, so if you look at momentum, for example, right now, if you look at stocks that have momentum, they could have momentum because they did really well in the post-vaccine period. Well, that's a post-vaccine effect. That's not a, a stock effect. So you need to tease that out. And that's something we do by kind of getting rid of systematic effects like that. So momentum is, is really important. Risk factors for us are really important. Um, things like, you know, a big driver on the market right now is interest rate sensitivity. Yes. So it actually calibrate every stock's interest rate sensitivity. We've actually come up with a way to measure how sensitive stocks are to changes in inflation swaps. And you'll be surprised what you see there. Um, So we control that actively in the portfolio. And these are all tilts that if you're not careful, when you take a value tilt or price to sales tilt, I should say, these things can come along for the ride if you don't control them. Well, let's talk about that because that is the that word when we get Professor Siegel on um, probably like ten minutes or so. That's going to be one of the main themes of the year. Uh, it's, it's certainly one of the things we're talking about on behind the markets every week is inflation. Inflation's here. Inflation is not going away in our view. Uh, this, the professor tends to talk about rising rates, so both of those topics quite interesting on your comments on rate sensitivity and inflation sensitivity. So, is is in your view, is it better to? Um, and even coming back to where we talked before, right, how you have a momentum of things. Is it in these particular factors, is it better to be just neutral on rate sensitivity and inflation sensitivity? Or do you want to let the momentum model tell you it's time to rotate to higher and lower inflation sensitivity? So momentum model needs breadth to work, right? And the problem with inflation, 
And in rate sensitivity is, if you want to test the power of that, you only have, in the last 25 years, you probably have three cycles. Right. It's a so new cycle, this inflation cycle we have. We haven't seen it since yeah. the 70s. Right. Right. So what we are doing is we're actually keeping our portfolios neutral. That is not a tilt that we think we have an ability to predict. But it's really important to be neutral because if you're taking a value bias right now, uh, if you're taking a growth uh, – if you're taking a certain kind of value bias, you can actually get a lot of uh, inflation and interest rate sensitivity that can come we'll, along for the ride. We'll see if Siegel can convince you to go overweight inflation sensitivity here coming up. Um, on, on, and so on rate sensitivity, is it the same? Like because we've been in a one, it's been a long cycle. So are you thinking of rate sensitivity different at all than in, than inflation sensitivity? You want to be neutral to it? We can be neutral to it. And so what, what's, what's interesting here, Jeremy, is the reason we're choosing to be neutral to it is we can build an attractive portfolio and yet stay neutral. So I would rather take the bet elsewhere because you have a finite risk budget, right? And to me, trying to make a call on inflation or trying to make a call on rate sensitivity is really, really tough. So I'm sort of isolating that and saying, yeah, put that aside. There are all these things you can make a tilt on, whether it's asset utilization or analyst dispersion that are more predictive than inflation, right? Um, and in in I, I guess we we danced around it because you mentioned the momentum as having a you want to isolate it from the industry factors. It's that you're sort of trying to get sort of it's, it seems like an industry relative momentum. Do you want to be sector neutral in in how you're constructing things as a result of everything, or you're going to let some of those sectors? rotate above and, and beyond uh, certain bands from the market? We do. We take pretty large uh, sector tilts. Um, and that's also, that's based on a similar process where we're looking at sector valuation and sector momentum. So we do take sector tilts and industry tilts within the portfolio, but we always treat these as kind of two different bets. You know, one is what's the overall sector tilt in the portfolio and why are we taking that? And then what's the stock specific tilt in the portfolio? And our portfolio is probably 75% stock tilts and a little bit of sector tilts. Right. And then country. Where the risk is coming from. Yeah. Because again, you got way more breadth in stocks, right? Problem with sectors is you got 13. Chance that they're going to get it right is, is small. So you don't want to fight against it, but you want to limit the risk you're taking. That makes sense. And and countries would be like a sim- similar thing, although maybe like in a global portfolio, you could have a little bit more countries, but it's same concept. Yeah. So we used to take uh, we used to take country tilts. Um, but uh, when the pandemic started, we made a decision to stop doing that because we realized that the pandemic response in every country was something that no quant model could predict. So we actually eliminated any country tilts in our portfolios. And that was, as a quant guy, it was really hard to do because they're like, hey, I thought you guys never overrode your models. But we looked at what was going on and said, look, the policy response in each country is so country specific. You know, if you look at what's going on in Belgium, which is what's happening in Italy, which is what's happening in Germany, you know, there's no way any quant model can predict this, right? So eliminate that tilt from your um, from your process, and that's a really good example of risk control from an active tilt, active quant perspective. Because sometimes you need to step in and say, hey, you know what? I have no knowledge on this dimension, but at least recognize that you have no knowledge. That is a very interesting kind of question. When, we, when, we, when I thought about where, in, in applying active to quant, where do you step in? And this, this is a really good example like of what what is the trigger, and you've had this major like, you know, obviously the pandemic and all these things. Is there any other things from right. the pan- So country neutrality type questions was one of the decisions um, where you wanted to step in actively. Did the pandemic change anything else for you? Any structure, structural things happening from the pandemic that made you re-question how things were setting up? Yeah, the one other thing we did was a little bit more subtle. Um, and I, I've talked about earnings a lot. And what we realized was, you know, when you, when you went through the 2008, 2007, 2008 credit crisis, in a crisis, analyst earnings estimates have tremendous power. 
because the trailing numbers have so little information content. So when we started going in the pandemic, what you saw was analyst earnings estimates started to get revised really, really quickly. And we actively avoided shorting stocks where the earnings were getting revised quickly. Because that means something very dynamic is going on with these companies. And if and something dynamic is going on, what does it tell you? That means that the quant model is going to be weak in forecasting their performance, right? So we actually use that as a way to budget our active risk. And it, it worked out exceedingly well for us, especially in the U.S. So I, I think this you're, you're teasing out a number of areas. So I think the pandemic as a topic um, is one of the things we can come back to. Um, shorting and how much you short, I think, is a topic on the second half of the program. We'll be able to talk about more. But, but maybe before, you know, before we take a, a quick break and bring in the professor to, to start the second half, tell us a little bit about how you think about shorting. So far, we mostly discussed the long going. We'll tease out the shorting conversation in the second half. But like, how do you think about shorting generally, shorting in factor world? Um, again, we'll talk about a lot more later. Yeah, I think of shorting the same way as going long. To me, I, it's no different. So if you overweight value, you're shorting growth, you've got to figure out where to short it. And I, if you look at our, our, if you do any kind of attribution on our strategies, the value added from the shorts way exceeds the value added from the long because you're competing with less people when you're shorting. And so what percent of a strategy do you tend to short? So our, most of the portfolios that we run in mutual fund format, I have a target beta of about 0.6. So we are long seven, we are long 100, short 30. And we're typically short very high beta stocks, which brings the beta down to the 0.5 to 0.6 range. So yeah, it's this, a consistent short, always 30%. Well, this is going to be an interesting, an interesting conversation. There's a lot of mutual funds that are long only. You don't, he, like to your point, there's not a lot of short investors out there. Um, it's certainly... <laughs> Uh, sort of bull market there wasn't a lot of shorts. Well, so I think this will be very interesting to continue talking with you. Um, we're talking with Harindra De Silva, uh, who's president uh, of Analytic Investors, about his quantitative active factor models. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're going to have Professor Siegel. Uh, a lot of interesting moves in the markets. We've been focused on inflation with you. Again, we had another inflation print, so good to get your response to what you're yeah. seeing and um, the market rotation we're seeing. Oh, yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, the CPI, I thought it came in a hot, uh, actually, uh, in, in, and, and in the details. Yes, each uh, month was one-tenth over expectation on the CPI. Um, but, you know, one has to remember, in the middle of December, that's when oil reached $65 a barrel. And uh, now oil is back up to 82 83 within a dollar of its all-time high. So that energy, which depressed the index last month, is going to jump up. Uh, in in January, so I didn't see anything in there that that uh, talks about uh, relief. Uh, hospital services, for instance, someone commented was uh, on the low side of inflation, but we know what's happening now on hospitals in terms of staff shortages and, and premiums uh, uh, and bonuses have to be paid to bring people back. That doesn't look good going forward. Uh, you know, until the Fed becomes really serious much more serious than even what they're saying now, um, and stops the growth of monetary um, uh, um, uh, liquidity, uh, the inflation is, is really going to continue uh, this year. Now, the PPI was a little bit more on target um, uh, than, than the CPI, so th- that is, is, uh, is definitely true. We had a very weak retail sales. Um, data, which actually puts down GDP now under for the the forecasters, I see under six under seven percent for fourth quarter, um, uh, and under three percent for first quarter. Of course, part of it will depend on the COVID and uh, whether the the Omicron virus um, will uh, crest, which I believe it will. It does seem to be signs of, of, of cresting. Uh, here and then you'll see uh, a, a really a, a snapback. But uh, yes, Jeremy, in terms of a really strong rotation, um, not so much to just today. Um, we've seen you know a, a lot of volatility, and it is related really a lot to interest rates as theory 
would suggest it's related to interest rates. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, growth stocks are a little bit better than uh, than, than than value stocks uh, today. But really, we've we've seen. But don't forget, we've seen sharp reversals before. I I think this is the beginning of one that's going to be serious for 2022. But uh, listen, back when March of last year, we remember when interest rates suddenly shot up to 175. Now, we, we, we surpassed that with 180. When we jumped, jumped up to 175, we remember actually value had a stronger and a longer uh, run than it has had over the last uh, two weeks. Um, uh, but the last two weeks have definitely brought <laughs> brought value back. I said Bloomberg a Bloomberg uh, article about his asness and value uh, back. Um, I think it's way too short to confirm this. We've had false starts before, but I think, um, I mean, take a look right now. I, I see the uh, the 10-year, which was down to 170 in two hours and now up to 177 again. So, I mean, I, I, I think the push is just going to keep on going and that you're going to get the rotation continue. Yeah, we've got a, a momentum timing factor investor on the show for us for the hour, so we'll continue to get his take on this uh, value rotation. But it, you have saw, saw a major, I mean, it's, it's beyond like the traditional value growth, like the real mega growth stocks, are, I think what's come under the most pressure, which is interesting. Um, when you think about the Fed cycle, you know, you've been out there, and I keep telling people, like, if you want to see who's on the extremes, um, the Professor Siegel is on the most uh, aggressive on what the Fed do. You're seeing more people talk. They've increased from three to four. You're still well above four, is my... Yeah, I, I think we have to get to two by the end of the year, which I guess is uh, eight uh, quarter steps. Uh, 450 hikes, if people still say four. Uh, like, or, yeah, four it's just gonna do... <laughs> or 450 hikes instead of four quarter hikes. So, yeah, we shouldn't talk about how many. We should really talk about what it, it's got to be. But, you know, it, uh, it, I mean, again, with with the money supply increasing at that rate, they've got a hike. They've got a hike. I mean, if I see a slowdown in the money supply, now we do have fiscal contraction kind of coming up. I mean, you know, the bill back better died and, and it, it looks like they're, you know, they're trying to get parts of it through, but that is not now doesn't look like the, you know, the, the child care credit uh, expired. There's a number of fiscal forces that might do a little bit of a slowdown here in the economy. If the liquidity keeps on coming in, though, that won't stop the inflation. And we do see shortages everywhere, still on workers, still in. I mean, we talk about supermarkets, you talk about, uh, you know, the protein, uh, meat particularly, but chicken and pork. Also rising, which are the you know the, the staple necessities on the food front. Um, this is this is uh, this is not uh, this is not good news going forward on uh, the inflation front. But um, uh, and a, and a slowdown. I mean, I think the virus, and I think when when the virus, if it if it sinks dramatically, and people start going out, travel again, and spend, and go to the restaurants again. That's not going to slow down inflation. And if, if, if we have uh, supply disruptions in China because of their zero COVID policy, that's going to make it worse. Demand in the U.S. with supply constrictions in China is not going to improve the inflation picture. Yeah, no, it's been uh, this macro thesis is, is, uh, is very interesting watching, you, uh, watching your calls and seeing how it dis- differs from the market. Any closing thoughts for the week? Uh, no, I think it's uh, a kind of a quiet week. We, we, we've, had, we've had Fed nominees. Uh, you know, the, the uh, Biden is now filling out for the first time if, if they're confirmed. Uh, and I guess there's no filibuster on these. So, I mean, if, if they want a 50, and I don't know if there's going to be a lot of Republican opposition, um, we're going to have the first full um, board in uh, over, I think, 10 or 15 years. Um, but the truth of the matter is we we need uh, we're going to see if there's any dissent on the policy coming up in, in the January meeting. I think it's January 25th. But we need independent voices at the Fed. Uh, we cannot have yes men and yes women there that just nod when the staff says, Oh, no inflation. It's a good transitory problem. No one raises. No, I think it really is. And I think we got to go this way. I, 
I think there's too much groupthink in the Fed. And, um, you know, I'm hoping uh, that uh, some of the new rotation as we get in January onto the Open Market Committee uh, might, pre- pre- uh, you know, um, prevail with some with stronger views. All right, Professor. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you again next week. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're going to continue the conversation coming back to Harindra De Silva um, from Analytic Investors. Uh, first, uh, Harindra, any, uh, can I give you any chance to comment on anything you heard from the professor? Anything uh, he say spike your interest? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to get his perspective on the potential for, you know, these larger rate increases, kind of highlighting again that this is an exposure you need to think about in your portfolio. Yeah, he's and, on the curve. You know, he's out there on the curve. He is not a dead up, center. Yeah. And, you know, he, he 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 tries to call it like he sees it. And, and there, one thing people ask is there's what you think they should do and what they actually will do. And so I didn't push him on that. But that, that is one of the questions is, like, will they actually come to that realization? He's he's pretty confident that they will come to that realization. But nobody else thinks that today. Yeah, but this is – I mean, it's challenging from a – investment standpoint, right? Because normally when the market's down, the Fed cuts rates. So you have this Fed put that is clearly no longer in play. And I don't know whether people realize that because that's really helped us for the last decade. Yeah. And his question is, is it factored in the markets or not? And that's where I was saying like the mega growth stocks, right? So like you, there, there's a certain active uh, growth manager. A lot of people would know who I'm referring without referring to them, that their stocks were up some astronomical times and are down well over 50%. Like, so there has been this huge destruction within that mega growth category. So like, I think some of it has been moving, but the main indexes have held up because like the fangs have held up. And the question is, do those roll over? And is that the next phase of the rollover? Is, uh, is there a Fed? Is the, the Fed put coming out think, make you think differently about your neutrality on any factors? You must be thinking my shorts, if I have a short portfolio that gets me a 0.6 beta, these 0.6 betas might start mattering, actually. Yeah, I'm, I mean, what we've seen, what we saw last quarter was the stocks that we had, we thought had a 1.3 beta, had a 1.5 beta. So the betas on the downside are turning out to be a lot, lot larger. Um, and if a, if a company had any kind of interest rate exposure, it's been really penalized. Um, yeah. And the thing I look at as a, as a factor investor is not the factor return itself, but also the volatility of the factor, right? Because if a fact, if the daily factor volatility is low, that means people don't care about it. And what we are seeing in the last three months, the last two months, the last six weeks is the volatility of the return between the inflation factor and interest rate sensitivity is, is through the roof. Hmm which tells me everybody's agonizing about this. This is something that really matters. Um, so if you think your portfolio is behaving unusually, That's you should a try and assess whether it's got that factor in it because you're sitting there going, oops, you know. Because to me, a lot of what's happened with the growth stocks or the spec tech stocks getting affected has to do with duration because their earnings are so far into the future. Yes, is anybody doing this well, would you say, besides analytic investors? Uh, is there tools you think? I mean, I would say, you know, people look at PE ratios and people look at quality ratios. And would you say people are, are providing that analytics well? No, I'm, I'm surprised how hard it is to get inflation sensitivity or even rate sensitivity for a stock. I agree. Because, I was just thinking about my own tools that we have on our website, and like we think okay. about that, but we don't have that easy description of how do you even. I mean, I see, you know, there. I, I'd seen some people do like a beta, like a they do the regressions and show a beta of the stocks to it, but not in a very common. It's not out there very publicly. Yeah, thankfully, right for somebody <laughs> like me. <laughs> but you know, that's that's part of teasing this stuff out, right? Because we see something. And then you say, okay, how can I identify it systematically? Uh, and it's not hard to do. I mean, all you need is 10-year rate data, and you run a regression for every stock, and you get the beta. Um, you know, there's obviously a fair amount of 
data you need to do it. But this used to be, when I first got into this business 25 years ago, this used to be a major project. And now it's, you know, the people we have on the team say, oh yeah, you have want that exposure, here it is. And it's on my desk three, you know, three hours later as opposed to three weeks. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but I, I, I'm, I'm a little... Um, I wish I could point you to something that people could go to a website and download it because it's not a sector issue. It's not even a value growth issue. It's very stock specific. And I can tell you when I look at like within the airline sector, there are certain airlines that are really interest rate sensitive and others that are not because some of them have floating rate debt. Others have fixed rate debt. Well, that's really interesting. Um, I, I would often say like the min vol factor um, would have since embedded rate sensitivity from some of the historical stuff I was doing. And then this year, MinVol, like it's been a volatile year and MinVol hasn't held up. And I, and I think some of it is where some of those stocks have had this rate sensitivity. It, do you see that in, in your construction? Do you expect more of that this year or any other questions on that? Yeah, so the correlation between low beta and interest rate sensitivity is huge. It's around 0.6. So if you're building a low beta portfolio, a minval portfolio, and you're not controlling for duration, you're going to get yourself a really rate-sensitive portfolio. So that, if you look at any of the ETFs out there that have a minval bias, they have huge rate sensitivity. So it's something that you really need to control. That's probably of all the factors, you know, value, growth, momentum, profitability, earnings, that's probably the factor that can get you into the most trouble if you don't control rate sensitivity because the correlation is so strong right now. So good. Sorry, thanks for bringing that up. It's, I mean, it's the, it's the, given it's our number one theme is rates, inflation. Uh, and I, I've published on this before on how Minval was so tied to rates. So I, it's vested it's right. interest in talking about that. But it, and it is what, but it is what's happening in the markets right now. And, um, and I noticed it is the most surprising given that people are taught, you know, what do you do for a more volatile environment? It's like people are going to the exact opposite of what's creating the volatility right now. Yeah. No, you see, if you go to a vanilla Minval, you're going to step you know, you're going to get low beta, but you're going to get interest rate sensitivity. And interest rate sensitivity, unfortunately, is going to have a negative payoff. <laughs> so you'll have low volatility with negative returns, which is kind of a worse, you know, not, not what you're looking for. Well, no, let's, one of the things, these things rebalance, so these things can change. So, like, is it possible, you know, as they, as they rebalance, they, they go into things that benefit, like the, the things that were higher, um, you know, the things that start protecting you from interest rate 70 are the ones that become, you know, lower beta and how quickly those adapt. Like, is that possible? How quickly can that, can that model turn? Yeah. So that, it usually takes about 18 months. So you're, you're actually identifying something that's really important here, right? Because beta measures market sensitivity. And as the market gets driven by rates, Migrating to low beta will become a low rate sensitive stock. That has not happened yet. And Just I've been starting. surprised because of the, when I've looked at this historically through other cycles, I've seen it happen in like six months, 10 months, 12 months. This time you haven't seen it happen. And I don't know whether it's because we've never seen an environment where rates are so low. Right. I mean, rates are, they've never been this low. And I don't know whether it's where we are starting off from. I don't know it's because of the trailing data in the pandemic affecting the way betas are calculated. I mean, beta, historical beta calculation right now is really challenged because you're using, typically people use what, the last two years or the last three years? Well, the last three years has the pandemic in it. So yeah. it's got all this stay at home, work from home, all this kind of stuff going on in there. So that's why I think these strategies are particularly challenged from a passive perspective without somebody kind of actually managing these exposures. So something to really watch for. I think by the time we go to my, my if you had to put me on a gun to my head, I would say in six months from now, we'd probably see the separation happening in terms of low beta actually being associated with low interest rate sensitivity. Because that's certainly in the market right now. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it, this is going to be a theme we come back to, I think, again and again. And let me just reintroduce your guest. We're talking with Harindra De Silva from Analytic Investors. Harindra, I, I believe you've done some work. We talked about shorting the market and factor shorts. Um, I believe you've also done some of the work on 130-30 type investing. Is that is that correct? And And thinking about how do you apply leverage or how do you apply shorts with that? Do you want to talk a little bit about the concept? Did, did people go away from like one thirty thirties at all? Where where are we now? What's the case for doing something like that? Yeah, so one thirty thirty. You, you know, the idea behind it is that you invest one hundred dollars. You have one hundred thirty dollars long and thirty dollars short, and you have. So, in other words, you have full market exposure, but you are using the fact that there are stocks that are really good shorts, right? Because they're 30% short. And 130-30 works as well, as long as you have the ability to identify significant short candidates. If it doesn't, you're basically doubling up on your active risk and you'll end up with having poor returns. And I think that was one of the challenges with what we call you know, short extension or one thirty thirty, because there was a lot of people started doing it and got burned because they didn't have the ability to manage the risk of the shorts. And the, the, the most difficult thing about managing a short book is human emotion. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you, when you buy a stock that you think is going to be going to go up and it doesn't go up, it goes up less, the mistake is self-correcting. But if you short a stock, or it goes a bigger and bigger position, and it goes up, yeah, you need to recognize that you made a mistake and correct it. And it's very easy to double, unintentionally double down on your mistakes. And I think that's what's the challenging thing about shorts. And I find it really useful to be have a quant discipline around you because if something doubles, you have to have your position. I mean, no ifs, ands, and buts about it, right? Because from a risk control standpoint. Your position size, the size of your position just got larger. You need to cut it down or maybe even admit that you made a mistake and eliminate from the portfolio. So I think, you know, that's one of the reasons 13030 has gone away or has gotten less popular. But there are a number of institutions that use that technique now um, that we are familiar with to actually add additional alpha in their portfolios. Is And and um, so would you say it, it, it's something that um – it's particularly better for a particular style or is it just the whole factor investing concept generally? Like, is it, is it, you know, for a low beta, low vol approach, is it particularly important for a low beta approach to try to bring your beta back up to like, you know, 130? If you're already buying low beta, you get, you go 130 times the low beta, you get closer to the market beta. Is that, is that the idea? Yeah, so you know, if you're doing it in low beta, you would invest $70, you would invest $130 in low beta stocks, and you'd short high beta stocks and bring your beta down to one. Uh, shorting high beta is a really good thing to do if you do it in a risk-managed way. I mean, we've been doing that now for 15 years or so, and I, I mentioned earlier about the value added. What's surprising is if you look at that portfolio, the total return on that portfolio the last 15 years is negative. The, the high beta stocks. Up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if the market's up about 12%. MSCI World's up about 12% over the same time period. The return on this portfolio is negative. And I, you know, it blows me away every time I look at this. And it's not because we are incredibly smart. It's because we are fishing in the right pond. And so why aren't more people fishing there? Well, first of all, you've got to have not many people short. Second of all is you've got to have a very disciplined approach of having a long book to balance it off, right? Because if you short high beta stocks, when the market rallies in that short time period, it's incredibly painful. Yes. If you have a long book to balance it off, you never see, you never see it because it's like, okay, my short book is really hurting me, but my long book's even making even more money, so you're okay. And what, I, what we've done in all the analytical work we've done is shorting needs to be done in about a 20 to 30% ratio. Anything more than that, the rally in the shorts will overcome the long book. Does that make sense? Because it's such high beta that you can't, uh, right. 
and there's you know there are some strategies today in the market that are fully market that are dollar for dollar you know short the high beta and long the low beta and you know you could expect what happened over the last uh, few months or in last few years. Yeah, you can't you can't tolerate that. If you if you actually do the math and look at the correlation, the volatilities, you'll see the optimum short is around thirty percent. And I I I. You know, we came up with a number analytically looking at the data and now having lived it for 15 years or so, I, I see what can go wrong, right? Uh, because I've often felt people come to us and say, hey, just do more shorts if they're so good. And I go, yeah, when it's painful, you'll fire us. Right. And it's still going to stick with you is, uh, is, is key. Yeah. Um, so you've got to stick with it and you've got to have enough wealth to actually live through it, right? And you, if you have too, if your short portfolio is incurring subs and losses, you need to cover the shorts. You might not have the portfolio value to cover the shorts, and that's why you need to limit it. And so that's part of the art of running these high beta short books is managing the exposure. When you think about the the sort of path for analytic and um, where what other research angles we, we we covered a lot of cool topics today. Uh, we've got about probably three three minutes left. Any sort of places of of things we haven't covered you'd want to bring some attention to? Yeah, I'd really encourage people to think about what carbon exposure they have in their portfolio, and at, by carbon I mean a company's emissions footprint. You know, if you if you haven't been tracking it, you should be. If you look at something like the KRBN index, you know, that's doubled in value over the last year. It's 100% return last year. So it's basically the cost of emissions is going up. And that's going to do the same thing that the energy crisis did in the 70s, which is for certain companies, it's going to have a dramatic impact on their assets and the ability to operate profitably going forward. And this is really an unpriced risk. I think it's as bad as interest rate sensitivity as more and more people move towards this two-degree alignment. And it's, it's a hidden risk, and you need to yep. figure out a way to quantify it and manage yep. it. And, and I'm spending a lot of time figuring out how to make sure we're managing that risk exposure in our portfolios and actually the position based on it. But this was fascinating, really interesting conversation. I appreciate it. We've been listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.